Hello, curiosity seekers and adventurous thinkers. Welcome to Applied Curiosity Lab Radio, the podcast for the relentlessly curious. This season, our host and Applied Curiosity Lab's chief curiosity seeker, Becky Saltzman, will be sharing the studio with ACL's chief experience producer and favorite sister, Jennifer Felberg. The lens is, and always will be, curiosity. Each week, fun and formal conversations center around one delectable curiosity bite, designed to give your brain the time and ideas to think about thinking, to flex your curiosity muscle, and maybe even revolutionize the way you think. A few years ago, I was in Arizona for Bob Cialdini's Principles of Persuasion workshop, learning from the guy who wrote the best-selling book, Influence, and all the principles of persuasion. And while I was there, he was explaining that there are just a handful, maybe there were like 10 people in the world who were certified to teach his principles. And when I got back to my hotel room, I was very curious about what this looked like. So I looked up the bios of all the different people who were certified Cialdini trainers, and one of the profiles stood out. And this was a guy named Brian Ahern. And Brian is a speaker, trainer, consultant. He worked a lot in the insurance industry, but his bio was really interesting, and I really like what he had to say. So I thought, well, I'm going to just send him an email. So I reached out to Brian. I'm in the hotel room. I reached out to Brian. And I think like within an hour, he contacted me back, and we ended up having a phone conversation. And I just was amazed at this guy who the stranger reached out and he just immediately was receptive and we just hit it off from the get-go. And over the years, we've kind of kept in touch. And since then, we have both become LinkedIn learning authors and we arranged kind of luckily, but a little bit tweaking our schedules for Brian and his wife who live in Ohio to be in Santa Barbara recording their course at the same time that I was recording my course. And we met over our love of brown drinks. I kind of upgraded from Brian to his wife, Jane. She's now one of my, he calls it a, he calls it a a gal mance. It's like a bromance, right? For gals. When Brian launched his now best-selling book called Influence People, Powerful Everyday Opportunities to Persuade that are lasting and ethical, We thought we'd break protocol and Jennifer and I would have him in the hot seat. So that's what we're doing today. And we welcome Brian Ahern. Hi, Brian. Hello. I've been really looking forward to this, ladies, because as I told you in one of my emails, you guys make me laugh. I listen to you most (laughs) mornings when I'm working out. Well, good. This is going to be a little bit of a different. uh, You've been on some great podcasts. This is going to be a little different. And we are going to start by doing something that is going to piss Jennifer off. Yeah. You're going to do the curiosity bite and not ask me. I guess I have to give it up to you, Brian. And this has got to be pertinent to Brian's work. So we'll ask you the, fo- the following curiosity bite. You ready? I am ready. Looking back to before you knew about persuasion, who persuaded you to do something you otherwise wouldn't do? And what did they persuade you to do? I would probably say Jane persuaded me because I had been dating somebody for six years or so. And um, I broke that off to start dating Jane. 
So she persuaded me to leave this high school sweetheart and start dating her. Juicy. Looking back, what principle do you think was most persuasive? And don't say the principle of a good figure and a strong drink. I was going to use a tougher term than that. <laughs> um, literally, literally, when when I started my career at Travelers, I, I went in the HR training room and saw her on the first day and thought, wow, she's really good looking. I was attracted to her. And uh, the funny thing was she looked at me and thought, what an egghead. And her, she said, she said her next thought was, Traveler's really got a winner here. And then she went on to say, I thought when you took your coat off, you were going to have a pocket protector because I had uh, a crew cut. I had these little small like wire rim type glasses or something. And I was really big. But she said, you know, in your sports coat, you just look heavy. And it was a few weeks later when I invited her to go to an outdoor party. And I said, just bring a change of clothes. We'll, we'll go. I'll introduce you to some of my friends. We weren't even dating then. I just was going to introduce her to friends. But when I changed into jeans and a T-shirt, she thought, holy cow, he's not fat because I was getting ready for a bodybuilding contest. So she was really the more shallow one, I guess. Well, I, I definitely respect her for that. But my question before, <laughs> and then I'm going to put put this to Jennifer, but my question is, which one of the principles of persuasion, and I know you haven't gotten into them yet, but we will, which one of the principles of persuasion you think applied most to Jane or to you to persuade each other? Uh, I, I think that she might say in terms of our ultimately getting married that it was the principle of scarcity because we weren't going out at one point. And I asked how she was doing because we still work together. And she said she was doing great. She goes, even if you ask me out again, I'm not going out with you. And she likes to say that was scarcity because then all of a sudden I wanted her because I couldn't have her. <laughs> okay. That's I love it. Love it. The hard to get. All right, yes. Jennifer, looking back before you knew about persuasion, who persuaded you to do something you otherwise wouldn't have done? And what did they persuade you to do? Well, I could answer this, but I don't know about persuasion because I haven't heard Brian yet talk about his his stuff. So I will answer this at the end of the podcast. I'm just going to jump in and start with our list. Oh, look at I you mean, getting right to the list. My list, not your list, my list. <laughs> and Brian, you're going to you're going to be a part of my list this time. Okay. I'm going to use your principles and I have quotes from very famous people. And each mm -hmm. of them, I think, pertain to one of your principles. But and wait a second. I thought you couldn't answer the question before because oh, you didn't right. know the principles. <laughs> okay, you just busted Jennifer. That's why she said our list, my okay. list. This is a list that we did together. Okay. But okay. we're going to pretend that it was Jennifer because, you know. She, Don't okay. say that. You were, you were helping her with her homework. Well, I did do a little bit of research, but I don't know enough to really be able to answer the curiosity bite. She did start okay. your book. She did start your book and she was saying how much she loved it. And then last night I was like, did you finish it? And she said, I didn't get all the way through. So you need to help me with a few of the principles. But she, in fairness, no. she did do several on her own. So here is Jennifer's exclusive list. You ready? I, okay. I'm going to ask you, I'm going to say the quote, and then you are going to guess the principle. Okay. Okay. So this one comes to us from a very wonderfully intelligent and huge influencer, Rodney Dangerfield. <laughs> okay. His quote is, I told the dentist my teeth are going yellow. He told me to wear a brown tie. That would be the contrast phenomenon. Oh, 
I didn't even think about the contrast phenomenon. Guess what we were yeah. thinking of it? I was thinking it was authority. So now you have oh, to talk about- because it's about, a doctor. Because yes. it's a doctor telling him, okay. So now I'll, we'll let you elaborate on, I mean, you could talk about the contrast yeah. and why it's the contrast, because that's kind of not what we were thinking. We were thinking authority, but we'll leave it to you to explain the principles. Okay. Well, I mean, authority would, would certainly be if a doctor told you, you probably, well, if he says to, if he says, stand on one leg and and flap my arms, maybe I'll get better if I stand on one leg and flap my arms. So I'm flapping my arms there. right now. But I'm not a doctor. Why would you do that? <laughs> <laughs> um, but but I just, I mean, contrast came right to mind because the, the color yellow and the color brown, and I thought maybe it would uh, the brown would make his teeth look brighter than they would if they were yellow against another background. Well, how can you use, how could a listener take authority and contrast and apply that? Apply it in your own life? Because that's the thing about your book. It's so applicable and so tangible. Give us a little nugget on each of those principles. Sure. Uh, something like, like contrast. People, pe we always say contrast is always available. People are always making comparisons to something. If somebody says he is tall, he is only tall compared to other people that you may know, but that very person might be very short compared to uh, people on a basketball team. So it's, it's totally subjective and it's all about what you compare to. And when you understand that, you start thinking, well, what are the best comparisons I can make so that whatever it is that I'm talking about offering uh, looks to be the best possible. So uh, another example would be if I wanted to borrow $5, I wouldn't say, can I have a dollar? No, I'm kidding. Can I just have five? Because all of a sudden $5 seems like a lot of money. But if I say, hey, Becky, could I borrow uh, 20 bucks? And then I think, oh, no, I'm sorry, I only need five. Five seems inconsequential compared to 20. That's the thought process. What it is that you compare to first will dramatically impact how somebody experiences the next thing. I think about that because a lot of people refer to that as anchoring. And in my previous career, when I would go for a listing appointment and the prospective seller would ask me what my commission rate would be, and my commission rate was 6%, when I would say 6%, invariably they would negotiate. But when I said 30% or 33%, which is mm -hmm. absolutely ludicrous. And I would say it with a straight face. So they would look at me like, is she joking? And that I, that clearly I was. And then I would say, no, 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 6%. I would say that I cannot recall a single time that someone negotiated in that scenario. And I was just mm -hmm. using contrast as just a fun little joke. So I know it's a powerful principle. Well, if you had, jo if you had joked the other way and said 1% and go, no, I'm kidding, it's, it's really six, they would have started to negotiate. The other thing I'll say about contrast, I never really thought of it before, but Jane's initial impression of me is, oh, you know, he looks heavy or maybe he's fat, probably made me look even better when she <laughs> finally saw me in a t-shirt. That was a very good strategy for you to wear a bulky thing. And then the next thing where, one of those wife beater t-shirts. <laughs> Great strategy. <laughs> what about authority? Uh, um, as an authority, I would say don't wear a wife beater t-shirt. <laughs> Ka-ching. But authority is just the natural tendency we have to follow the lead of people that we see or view as experts. And so when somebody goes to a doctor and they give them medical advice, they are much more likely to follow that advice than if the same advice is given from somebody who's just a friend. And um, since we're on the theme of laughing about Jane, I will say that uh, <laughs> you, you know, Becky, but your listeners don't know that she's an awesome golfer. 
I mean, Mm -hmm. she's a single digit handicap now. She is really, really good. And a long time ago, I had come back from a training event where I told her about a golf example that I used in the training. And weeks later, she's reading a book and she goes, oh, listen to what Corey Pavin says. Now, Corey Pavin won the US Open in the early 90s. And she reads this paragraph and it's almost verbatim what I said. So of course, I had to tell her, Jane, I told you that. (laughs) She goes, no, you didn't. And I go, yeah, a couple of weeks ago when I came home from the training event. And she's looking at me like a deer in the headlights. She's like, no idea. And finally, I go, you don't remember me telling you this story? Nope. I'm like, oh, I guess if Corey Pavin says it, it's true. But when I say it, it's not. (laughs) (laughs) But Corey Pavin's an expert and Mm -hmm. I'm not. So she believed it when she read it from him, but she didn't believe it when it came from me. I had no authority when it came to golf. Mm -hmm. Well, that makes total sense. Jane busted. Sorry. Yeah. She catches me all the time on that stuff. Ready for the next one? I was born ready, Jennifer. I I felt that about you. (laughs) This one is from Laurel K. Hamilton. Never trust people who smile constantly. They're either selling something or they're not very bright. I would say it's probably liking and somebody is trying to get you to like them so that they will do what you want. (laughs) So, yeah, it could be a genuine smile. It could be a fake. But, yeah, that's that's uh, an unfortunate stereotype of the glad handing, fast talking salesperson. He got it right. I'm so proud of you. He's two for two plus a bonus because he added contrast. Right, right. Which is like a bonus (laughs) principle. All right. Talk to us about liking and how do we avoid this seeming like the glad hand, you know, the glad handing salesperson? How can we use this in a genuine way? Okay, I, I I think the way you use liking, I mean, so for your listeners, it's it's easier for any of us to say yes to people that we know and like. But the, the question is then, how do we, if we're trying to influence somebody, use this principle without coming across as that glad hander? And what I always tell people is truly try to come to like the person. Don't focus on getting the person to like you come to like the other person. So it's not about me trying to get you, Becky, or you, Jennifer, to like me. It's about me finding out what I can and looking for the things in both of you that I would like, and that will make me like you. And when you see that, and when you see the genuineness of how much I truly like you, you become much more open to whatever I might ask. But whatever I might ask is going to be in your best interest because I like you. And so it's a virtuous cycle, I think, when you approach it that way. I usually think about that with curiosity. And if you can be curious about people, if you can try to be interested before you work on being interesting, it does become a virtuous cycle where you find something to like about someone else. And then you really don't need to worry about creating some reason for them to like you. So I think that's really, mm-hmm. I think that's a really good pointer for liking. And I usually will talk about that right after we talk about the difference between ethical influence and manipulation. And and I can always tell when I'm talking about this, people start nodding. It's like they've never thought of it before. They're so used to trying to get people to like them, but it's just a slight shift to mentally say, no, I need to come to like this other person. And to your point about curiosity, one of the best ways you're going to do it is by asking lots of questions so that you can find those things that you have in common or the things you can genuinely compliment somebody about. When you think about compliments, and you brought that up in terms of liking or likability, how does one 
determine or does it really matter whether a compliment is genuine or not? In other words, if you compliment me in a way that is not genuine, but I don't perceive it, does it still work on me that way? It does. I mean, there was a study that was done that that showed flattery works just as well as genuine compliments because everybody likes to feel like that. And I can remember my mom when I was uh, much younger and she would talk about somebody and she said, he's such a BSer. And then she would laugh and she actually liked the person, even though she knew that all the stuff he said was was a bunch of BS. So I, that that always reminds me about, yeah, you know, somebody might say, yeah, they're, they're full of it, but they kind of still feel good inside when they get that flattery. Well, Brian, you've never looked better. Well, I, I know that, but thank you for noticing. <laughs> <laughs> OK, I've got another quote. And this I'd comes- like you, Jennifer. I like you too. Oh, wait a minute. You're you're wait a minute. Now we're likability. I see what you're doing there. Uh okay, so the next one is from Jerry Seinfeld, love. And the All quote right. is Sometimes the road less traveled is less traveled for a reason. <laughs> uh scarcity. Oh, that's a good guess. Oh, that's a good guess, but it's wrong. Yeah. <laughs> Not that it's wrong. It's just that we picked a different one for scarcity. So, oh, okay. And since we made we made the test, we make the rules. We meaning I oh. made the test. I, I made the test. We were using this one as the principle of social proof. Okay. If people aren't going down the path, there's a reason for not going down the path. So maybe I don't want to go down the path. But then other people might say, because nobody's going down the path, I want to go down the path. What's down there? Oh, that's a good point. It could be scarcity. Hmm. I guess mm-hmm. the person who wrote this best-selling book knows a little bit more about this than we do. I hate that <laughs> part. All right. Well, talk to us about these principles. You can use this one. You can you can do with this as you may, but we have this one for social proof. And just so you know, not that I'm giving you the answer code, there is another quote for scarcity. <laughs> Thank you, teacher, for letting me know what's going to be on the test. Uh, so social proof, most people would, would know that if uh, they raise kids peer pressure, that we feel this this drive to follow the crowd. Uh, because usually, I mean, over the course of history, going with the crowd probably helped humans survive. Um, you're a lot better off, you know, if everybody's running away in a direction to probably run away with them rather than stand your ground because there could be a ferocious beast or an enemy coming your way. So we have we have learned over the course of human existence that there's safety in numbers and we tend to follow what other people are doing. How can we use this strategically and how can we avoid having this used strategically against us in a manipulative way? Well, first to the question of how can you use it when you look for uh, honest statistics or information that indicate what most people are doing to give that other person a sense of comfort that what you're asking is probably the right thing to do, that will, that will be much more persuasive than if you never mentioned it at all. You know, if, if everybody's raving about a book or a movie or uh, a product, we generally will feel more comfortable going to that movie, buying that book or buying that product. So you'd be a bungler if you didn't mention that because you wouldn't have as many people taking the action that you want. 
Right. I think about these YouTube videos and how often you use how many people viewing it as a barometer to whether it's worth your time. And I wonder with Instagram announcing that they are going to remove the number of followers that are the number of likes, rather, I think that each post has. I just mm-hmm. wonder how that's going to affect the principle of social proof. That would be a fascinating study to measure it all behind the scenes about how many views is it, is it getting um, with or without. I mean, if you could kind of do an A-B testing and put it on different platforms and see what kind of difference it makes, because yeah, it's it's a snowball effect. As it goes downhill, the snowball gathers steam, it gets larger. Technically, it doesn't gather steam or it wouldn't be a snowball, but you get the point, right? <laughs> It'd be all melted. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. It'd be a tidal wave by the, by the bottom. Yeah. Run, run. Everybody's running, so got to follow that group. So on the flip side, you said, how can you avoid just mindlessly being swept along by it. And sometimes it's just to to stop and ask a question, which Becky, I know you're very good at. As an example, there was a great use of of this principle by Allstate Insurance, probably 10 or 12 years ago during the college football bowl season. Spokesperson Dennis Haysbert stands in the middle of the Rose Bowl and says, this Saturday, 110,000 people will fill the stadium to watch a football game. And then he goes on to say, Last year, Allstate filled this stadium 10 times with the number of people who made the switch. And I'm sure viewers were like, whoa, 1.1 million people. If that many people have done something, I should get online or I should call an Allstate agent. Hmm. Now, if you also think about contrast and comparing, 1.1 million people is a lot, but that gives you no indication how many times did they have to quote people. I mean, that might only be a 5% close ratio. You, you never know, but, but they did legitimately put out a number. So in a defense, I think you want to step back and, and ask a critical question. Okay, that's a lot of people, but how much action did you have to take to get that? Because if you knew that only 5% of the people who got a quote actually made the switch, you might go, I'm not going to waste my time. What are my odds? I'm going to spend this time and then I'm going to get nothing to show for it. It makes me wonder if the visual aspect of social proof is more powerful than the numeric, because in some cases we're getting into such large numbers that I think it's really hard for people to even comprehend. Mm -hmm. Yet when you show a crowd of maybe 50 people, that might be more impactive than saying a thousand people. So that was a really good use of a visual example to represent a number that might not mean anything to people. Right, right. Well, one thing they could have done, you know, in hindsight, as I've thought a lot about that commercial that could have made it even more effective, if he had stood in that, that, uh, the Rose Bowl and said this weekend, 110,000 people will fill the stadium. And if they could have all of a sudden, boom, showed, showed that stadium filled, Mm. then you really would get that Mm. sense. And then if he went on and said, last year, we filled the stadium 10 times. And if it zoomed out and you saw that stadium 10 times, that would have been much more impacting than talking about, you know, getting people to have to do the math in their head, 1.1 million people. Absolutely. That would make a way bigger impact on me because the minute you start talking about numbers, I'm out. I came to that conclusion because when I do public presentations, I usually will use that. Some people remember the commercial, but it's just a, it's just a very good uh, way of talking about that. But I started to realize, why am I showing an empty stadium when I'm talking about this? I'm doing exactly what they were doing, which I thought was wrong. And so now I will usually have a picture of a stadium that's got like 110,000 people. And it doesn't matter that it's not the Rose Bowl. It's that it conveys that picture. Smart. Very smart. Ready for the next one? Um, yeah. That, that didn't sound very confident. 
well, last time I t- told you I was born ready, and you made fun of that. So, oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Contrast. <laughs> this is my favorite one from George Burns. I love George Burns. Well, he is God. He is God. Yeah. And he wrote that great book, that 100 Stories for 100 Years. Oh, do you have that book? I used to read it to my elders, and it was so much fun. We've got to get that book. We'll put it in the show notes. Yeah. All right. What did George Burns say? If you live to be 100 years, you've got it made. Very few people die past that age. Scarcity. Yay! (laughs) You are born ready. (laughs) Well, the teacher gave me the answer earlier too, right? (laughs) Although that one one was was pretty obvious. I gave you the answer because that's reciprocity. Oh, we oh, haven't gotten there yet. Oh, 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 sorry, sorry, sorry. All right, talk to us about scarcity. And I like when you do the contrast between using the principle for ethical persuasion and how people can be on the lookout for when it may be used in a manipulative manner. So you kind of get a double whammy for listeners. Can you talk about scarcity vis-a-vis that? Yeah. So we respond to this all the time. And we we're recording this in the middle of November. I don't know when it's going to go live, but you know, in only a number of weeks, there'll be Black Friday and there will be deals that are put out and those deals will only last for a period of time or while supplies last. And and that's the biggest application of, of scarcity. When you know that that thing that you want, that opportunity is going to go away at a certain time or those items, if I don't get to the store at 4 a.m. and stand in line, I might not get one of the 20 Xboxes or whatever the hot item is. That is scarcity, driving you to a behavior that on any other day, you would not go at 4 a.m. and get in line at a store, wait for it to open up. I have found myself that kind of feeling inside where I don't even want something, but because it's scarce, and I say to myself, why am I even, I don't even want that stupid thing, but because what if I never get a chance to get it again? It's a limited time or, you know, there's only a few of them. And I feel myself being pulled in that way. Yeah. And um, there's lots of examples of products that weren't very good. But once people knew that they weren't going to be around, all of a sudden sales spiked because there were people who might have genuinely liked it. But then there are other people who think, I might I might not get to do this again or this thing might become a collector's item. The example and it was probably used when you went through the workshop all those years ago were Oldsmobiles. Oldsmobile were, were not a good car and they stopped making them. But once they announced that they were going to stop making them, their sales spiked. Now, imagine if they hadn't said that they're going to stop making them and would have just cut off production one day, they never would have had that spike in sales. So it shows you that people clearly respond to the fact that when something's going away, it triggers in us this desire to want it even more. It reminds me when I would go to New York for the first couple of times and I would see those going out of business signs. I didn't know that that was the name of the store (laughs) and it's in Times Square. So people don't know it. It's called going out of business. And that's a great name for a store. And so there would be lines and lines of tourists. And after I started going to New York every month, several times a month, year after year, I started realizing, aha, goingoutofbusiness.com is their online store. (laughs) Smart. Very smart. So you wanted to know defending yourself or when is it used unethically? Um, It becomes unethical when whatever that person or organization is trying to utilize is not truly scarce. Uh, An example that I've used a lot when it comes to this is that door-to-door salesman who might be selling 
roofing, siding, gutters, something for your home. And they tell you this. They say, Jennifer, if you sign tonight, you can save 15% off the normal price. But if I have to come back at another time, I cannot offer you this deal. I'll do it. And the, <laughs> no, 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 no. Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> but the question, the question you want to ask is, why? Why? If I decide tomorrow or the next day, why wouldn't you give me this deal? Most of the time, they're going to tell you, they're going to try to use more scarcity. Well, I'm so busy. I can't afford to come back to people that I've already made a presentation to, which is total BS. I'll do it. Because those are, those, are, <laughs> those are such hard sa- sales to make that their close ratio is probably very, very low. They will leap at the chance if somebody just calls them out of the blue and says, come over to my house, I want to buy your roofing today. They're going to jump on that. So there's nothing scarce. What might be scarce if somebody were to say, the reason I can offer you the price right now is because supplies are plentiful, but you know, there's a hurricane that's barreling down on the southeast part of the United States. And if it hits, there, you know, lumber and other things are going to be in short supply to go down there for the rebuilding process. So you might want to take advantage of the price today. That's, that is more legitimate because you might lose out on getting that price because the price may, may go up. Yeah. Now you can buy, Jennifer. <laughs> okay, I'll do it. <laughs> okay, this is very serious, this quote. And it's from someone that is extremely knowledgeable and, and a huge influencer. And that is Homer Simpson. <laughs> Volunteering is for suckers. Did you know that volunteers don't even get paid for the stuff they do? <laughs> Um, it's a misapplication of reciprocity. It is a misapplication of reciprocity, for sure. Totally. But reciprocity reciprocity is the right answer. Yeah, reciprocity would would be that Homer just goes and does it, and um, then he's surprised because they give him something nice in return that he didn't expect. How should we think about this as an actual tool that we can use? And how should we, again, on the flip side, think about this as and how can this be misapplied? How, how, okay. how do a lot of people think about this in the wrong way? Because this is I think this is a really tricky one. People I think of all of the principles, this is the one that people kind of miss the most. I don't know if you yes. agree. I, 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 I agree because they get it mixed up with rewards. Right. People will say like, oh, you know, and I see this with online marketers, too. And they'll say, you know, ways to use Cialdini's principles. And they'll say, um, offer something free if somebody signs up for your for your website. That's not that's not reciprocity. Reciprocity is I give to you and then it makes it easier if I ask you for something down the road. So true reciprocity on you know what those online marketers are doing would literally be click here and get your free whatever. And after that, it might be, um, we hope you enjoy your gift. Would you like to sign up for our website? That's reciprocity there, not sign up for our website and we will give you something. I'm not saying that that's not effective. Rewards do motivate behavior, but it is, it is not reciprocity. Reciprocity is very different in that with reciprocity, you give and you're hoping that somebody will maybe give and return to you. So it's almost, you could almost say it's this way. I have, will you? I've done this thing. Will you do this for me? And reciprocity opens up relationships. It's an initiator when you give to somebody, whereas rewards are contractual. I have, or excuse me, it's you have, so therefore I will. You are, in a sense, negotiating something. 
if you hit this number, you get this bonus. So it's it's negotiated. If you don't hit the number, you don't get the bonus. There's there's nothing that's going to be given. And it typically closes out a relationship. You know, you've done something. Now I do that for you. Now we're done. So reciprocity is more durable. It's It's durable. It's more risky. But it also doesn't necessarily take as much. Sometimes you can give just a little bit and people appreciate that. And they're very likely to do something that you may want them to do in return, rather than trying to motivate them by giving a, a whole bunch. And and an example that, that I mention in in uh, the book, my daughter, when she was uh, 14, I knew that if I would have entered into a negotiation, a reward situation to get her to cut the grass, if I would have said, Abigail, because I travel, I need you to cut the grass, I'm willing to give you a raise in your allowance if you'll do that, she would have tried to negotiate me up or she might have said, well, dad, since you're giving me a choice, I don't don't want the money. I'd rather just not cut the grass. And the worst thing I could have done would be pull the dad card and say, well, fine, now you'll do it for free because I said so. That wouldn't have helped have the relationship that I wanted with her. So I approached it through reciprocity. And what I did was I told her one day, I said, Abigail, I'm going to give you a raise in your allowance. And she asked how much. And I said $10 a week. And I told her I was proud of her and things that she had done. But I also was very thoughtful in knowing that if I needed her help down the road, she'd be more likely to do it. And when I did finally ask, hey, I travel a lot. Would you cut the grass occasionally when I need you to? She willingly said yes. Mm, I can't believe you got your daughter to cut the grass. That's amazing. she, because I, she's been raised under this, she's pretty good at it too. And I came home from a trip one time and I said, thanks for cutting the grass. And she goes, I didn't do it. Derek did. That was her old boyfriend. <laughs> so I said, what did you have to give him to make him cut the grass? And she goes, nothing. He loves me. I'm like, oh gosh, what an oh. idiot. <laughs> <laughs> what an idiot. Well, Jennifer, if you finish Brian's book, then you will know how to get Moses and Ginger to cut the grass. I'll get them to cut the grass, but they'll do a crappy job. (laughs) (laughs) And how do people think about reciprocity in the wrong way? I think it's really difficult because what if you give, give, give and people and then you start measuring, Okay, I've given 10 things and you've only given me eight. How how do you how do you think about that? What's the best way to think about reciprocity as an effective tool of persuasion? Well, I, I always encourage people to, you don't give to get. I mean, people will talk about it. Oh, it's the old give to get rule. And I used to kind of refer to it that way too. But I, I really came to recognize the best way to live life is to be a giver. It's to genuinely take the talents and anything that you have that can help people and try to do so. With the understanding then when you need help, you've built this army of people that you've helped and you can kind of survey and say, who are the right people with the right skills who might be able to help me? And when you go back to those people, they're far more likely to say yes. But if you're engaging in this, um, I'm only helping you to pull this lever and get you to do something, people will sniff that out and, and they'll resist the offer. The other thing is when you do things for people and you see that they don't reciprocate, that's kind of offensive in, in society. I mean, we, we have social norms and when people don't play by those social norms, those tend to be the people who are not invited out for drinks after work, not invited to social events, because after a while, people are like, you know what, if if Joe isn't going to buy a round of drinks or Joe never invites us to go do something, people will just stop inviting Joe to those events. So one of the things that we need to do is we need to recognize when someone's doing something and be willing to help or do something for them when they need it. Otherwise, we could find ourselves on the outs with our with our groups. 
Jennifer is sitting here with a boo-boo face on her face when you were saying not invited out for drinks. Not invited. It's like, take notes. Not that I want to give you a hint about this last one on Jennifer's list, but it does seem like reciprocity also really, really strongly is entwined with this next principle, which I'm not going to give you a hint. I'm going to let Jennifer. You don't, don't, don't tell me it's consistency. Let me see if I can guess. Yeah. Okay. Let's see if you can guess. <laughs> The quotes from Woody Allen. Most of the time, I don't have much fun. The rest of the time, I don't have any fun at all. Can you well, guess it's what a cons- it is? It's a consistency of his behavior, I'd say. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, these are mischaracterizations of all the principles, but if we made sure. them, if we made them accurate, it would be too easy for you. We wanted to challenge you, Brian. Thank you. Talk about consistency, because it seems to me that a lot of reciprocity has to do with consistency. Well, consistency, uh, you know, I I was um, coaching somebody last night, and I, I told them that this principle, I think, is one of the most powerful because of the drive that comes from within, but also the drive that comes from outside. The principle says that we feel an internal psychological pressure, but also an external social pressure to be consistent in what we say and what we do. And and the reason it starts internally is we just, most people naturally feel better about themselves when what they say and do lines up. And and I always flesh this out by asking people, have you ever given your word to somebody that you'd be somewhere to do something with them, but had to back out? Well, any adult has had that at least once, probably multiple times. I mean, there's always higher priorities like family that might come up. And then I, I say, I'm sure your reason was legitimate. Your friend understood. But the question is, how did you feel? And the words that I hear are, are guilty, awful, terrible. They're very heavy emotional words. So nobody wants to feel that way. And so if we can avoid that feeling by following through doing whatever we can to fulfill our word, most people will do that. So it's a strong drive internally, but it's compounded by the fact that externally, we also know when we do what we say, we're going to look better to anybody who knows what commitment we've made. So it's super, super powerful. And how can you use this as a tool for selling, ethical selling, for example? The reason it's such a powerful, especially in sales, people, salespeople will always ask me, what's the most powerful principle? And I, I will usually say it depends. It depends on a lot of things. But if I had to make a blanket statement, I would say the principle of consistency is the most important in selling because asking good questions helps you understand your client. You can get to know them so you can engage reciprocity by giving in a way that's meaningful. You get to know them, find out what you have in common or what you can complement. But you also get to know what their wants and needs are. And if you can tie back what you're offering to exactly what it is that they said they needed, well, most people are going to go, gosh, you know, I told Brian I needed A and B and C, and he's given me A and B and C. I guess I should sign the contract. It, it just makes it easier for that person to ultimately follow through. So for those reasons, it's, it's incredibly powerful. And those are the reasons if you're in sales, you want to use it. Get to know your customer, engage liking, be able to to give in ways that are meaningful and also understand what they need and tie that back into your presentation when you're finally asking for the business. 
I feel like consistency is one that is often weaponized, whether it's in the political arena or even as a way to get people to behave in a way that's consistent with what they might have said before, which may be counter to what they really want to do. In other words, it's counter to learning, changing your mind, finding Mm -hmm. out that we're wrong. And all one has to do is point out that you have consistently said this or you consistently thought that and people are disinclined to say yeah you know but guess what i learned and i was wrong but it sounds more like being reliable and reliability well reliability becomes really important like teenagers are not as consistent i mean there is some consistency there but i think as as they grow and they get older they move into a career, you start to realize how important it is to be able to rely on somebody. And so it becomes mutual where if I ask you to do something and then you commit, I'm relying on that. And if you don't do that, that that harms your your reputation. You also learn that people are relying on you and you better follow through. Otherwise, your reputation is hurt too. That's that external social pressure. I think the older we get, the more inclined we are to really, really rely on this particular principle. But Becky, to your point about getting people to do things too, um, on the one hand, you can be manipulated into something where someone asks a preset of uh, or a set of questions where they know what your answer is going to be just to get you to the point of getting you to say yes to something bigger. So if I knocked on your door and said, how are you today? And you say, you're doing fine. And I say, do you, do you uh, enjoy going out? Uh, and you say, yeah, I love going out. Do you enjoy supporting local businesses? Yeah, I, I always try to support local businesses. Um, do you like to save money? Oh, who doesn't like to save money? <laughs> Here, would you like to buy our card? It's only $100, but it'll save you $2,000 over the next year when you shop at local businesses. And all of a sudden, you find you feel weird, and it might be hard to get out from under that, but you feel kind of, I don't know, dirty, like, oh, gosh, they just like weaved me into this. Yeah. And I, I, I never used those cards. I mean, I, at first when I used to buy them, and then I would just never use them. So I finally just stopped buying them. But that's an example of somebody kind of leading you down a trail by questions that virtually everybody would have to say yes to, but your gut's going, I don't want to buy your card. Especially when they show up on your at your door in a white coat, they compliment you. They tell you everyone in the neighborhood has bought a card, but there's only one or two cards left and that they bought a card from your kid when your kid was selling a card. Now you're pretty much done. Whoa, you used them all in a very manipulative way. And they and they engage unity and say, did you realize we are related? That's a great segue because I want you to talk about unity because I have some questions about it. So unity is the principle that uh, Robert Cialdini mentioned in his most recent book, Presuasion. And he came up with a seventh principle for decades. It was the six principles of influence. And then he surfaced um, principle of unity. And the principle of unity, it's not liking on steroids. It's, it's deeper than that. It's about a shared identity. I mean, it's one thing to like somebody. It's, you could say, I love that person. But it's when you share an identity. So there are things that we will do for family that we wouldn't do for anybody else. Best example that I can think of uh, is my father who served in the Marines. And even when I was much younger and didn't understand anything about this psychology, I knew when my dad would meet another Marine, particularly one who had been in combat, I had a sense that he felt closer to them 
than me, his own flesh and blood, because they shared an identity experience that hardly anybody else can really, really understand. So sometimes apart from a a family bond, there can be experiences that we go through in life where people can just look at each other and it's almost as if they know what the other person is thinking and feeling. Hmm. I'm glad you explained that because I've always thought that it was a little bit of likability or liking on steroids, particularly because liking is so impacted by similarities, which is even more impacted by uncommon similarities or uncommon commonalities. Yes, but it's um, when you think of the the examples, uh, another one might be sports. And, and how much people go through when they are on a team, particularly if they go through like college together and they're on a team for four years. Another great example is religion. If you go someplace to worship, what do you do? You, you stand together, you kneel together, you pray together, you sing together. All of a sudden, you're losing self in, in the body, in that religious body. So those go much deeper than simply saying, I like the same things that you like. Okay, that makes sense. We have a sort of fact that I'd like to share with you. I don't know if you Does are- it come from PU? Yes! Yay! <laughs> Prestigious <laughs> University. And this was a this was a sort of fact that was done recently with a very popular new book called Influence People: Powerful Everyday Opportunities to Persuade that are lasting and ethical by Brian Ahern. And what this found was that 87% of couples surveyed who had read Influence People found that they were able to influence their partner by 78%. In bed. (laughs) Was that a fortune cookie? (laughs) (laughs) It was a fortune cookie study out of PU. Brian, thanks so much for being here. This was a blast. I totally enjoyed it. And Jennifer, it was great to meet you in this venue. I hope someday we are actually meeting in person like we got to with Becky. I love it. And I'll join you in the brown drinks. Great. Thanks for listening. And I really hope you enjoyed the episode. Before you take off, I have a few more things to let you know about. One, you can find show notes for every episode of ACLR and links to all resources mentioned at applycuriositylab.com forward slash blog. It's there that we'll wait to read your answers to each week's Curiosity Bite. Two, in order to avoid missing Curiosity Bitten conversations, subscribe to Applied Curiosity Lab Radio on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and all the other spots that podcasts hang out and wait to be discovered. Toss up a review, especially if you have nice things to say. Finally, for all things Applied Curiosity, including information on workshops and your free membership to the Tribe of the Curious, go to ApplyCuriosityLab.com. In the meantime, elevate curiosity.